episode of Colubrid and Colubrid Radio. Uh, Zach here with Matt as always. How are you doing, Matt? Oh man, it's been a crazy day, but I'm excited to start off the year with this episode. Um, it's going to be a fun time. Yes. T- tonight we're talking with Chad Fuchs of CF Snakes. Chad's been into herpetoculture since the early 90s and is well-established in the Wisconsin area, Madison area to be, be precise. And uh, he works with all kinds of colubrids and colubroids, one of which are hognose snakes. And many of you know hognose snakes are one of my favorites. Uh, so this is going to be a great episode because Chad's been around for a while. So we can, we're going to hit on the history of herpetoculture a little bit. Um, we're going to talk about things like the need for a good veterinarian and quarantine practices. And then we're just going to basically geek out the way we do all the time. But before we do that, we have, we're going to give you some updates. It actually hasn't been that long since we recorded the brumation episode, which is nice. So the only thing I have to report with the collection, because as you know, if you listen to the last episode, everybody's basically down for brumation other than my grow outs, is that we ha- I have started putting false water cobras together because this is the time of year that I do that. And uh, I've mentioned many times how easy they, they are to breed, at least my animals are. And I timed to see how long it took for the male to get a, a confirmed lock. And my male I'm talking about is probably six foot. And then the female he was mating is in the seven foot range. And I introduced the male and it was 93 seconds. So he didn't even take him two minutes. <coughs> so uh, they're, they just get the job done. And that's the way that, that cookie crumbles. So hopefully we'll have... False water cobra babies uh, later on in the year. I, I also put together another pair um, today, and my third pair is going to be bred probably the beginning of next week. Um, so that's all I have. I do have a couple um, comments that came to us about our brumation episode. Uh, we got lots of good comments, and a lot of people told us that they really liked the diversion to some snake biology in addition to the husbandry, uh, we didn't hear, I didn't hear anybody say that was horrible. I don't want another episode like that. Did you, Matt? No, you know what? Actually, from the response and the conversations I had with our viewers, is people were very interested in doing similar topics, mm-hmm. covering other areas of interest that may not commonly be covered, especially in the biology and physiology of these um, reptilia. Yeah. So, on that token, we do this for you, so you're totally allowed, and we encourage you to message either of us, both of us, go to Instagram, go to Facebook, like the Colubrid and Colubroid radio uh, pages, and message us there. Just get a con- in contact with us and let us know what aspects of Colubrid biology you'd like us to cover, and we can always try to figure out a way to incorporate it, because if, like we, we say in this podcast all the time, you're not, if you're want to be the best keeper you can be an understanding of the natural history and biology of your animal is, is basically what, in my opinion, in Matt's opinion, you need. And we're more than happy to do the nerdy deep dives and assimilate the information and then present it to you. Uh, we did have a comment from Chris with Dark Horse Herp. I made a statement about fox snakes in northern Minnesota, and he quickly informed me that they are not in northern Minnesota. And I know that I knew that they were not in Minnesota. I was just caught up in the moment of nerdy bliss talking about 
<laughs> snake brumation that I made a statement about them being in the northern part of Minnesota. So I want you all to know, not there. Thank you for pointing that out, Chris. And then the other thing that um, he brought up was the fact that you can also, for subtropical and tropical species, uh, replicate a rainy season. Um, we, we understand that you can do that. We do encourage you to be a little bit careful with dumping a lot of excess water only because if you do that, especially in a rack system where you don't have a lot of ventilation, you could end up with a fungal um, issue relatively quickly. Or you dump a bunch of water on some urates and poo, you now have a bacterial breeding ground. But that doesn't mean you can't mist. That doesn't mean you can't, you know, imitate that rainy season. And that's totally a trigger for a lot of species. So I wanted to kind of address those issues. And I want to thank Chris for Montrose for bringing that up and making our podcast better. Because in science, people can correct you. And it's okay, because all we're all, we're about are facts here, and that's what we want to present. So that's all I have to, to talk about, other than the fact that we start school on Monday. So this break was way too short. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, you know, it's going to be a much better semester coming up logistically for me. So hopefully we'll be able to record on a relatively stable, frequent rate is what we're hoping for, because the end of last semester was crazy for me and the end of the fall and beginning of winter I know was crazy for you. So what's up with you, Matt? Oh man. Well, first of the year I ended up starting a new position for work. So yeah. I'm actually traveling with a new hire and getting him accustomed to the territory that he'll be taking over. Um, so things are a little bit hectic. <laughs> they st they're going to be that way for a little bit, but, um, you know, one thing just real quick too, to go over the rainy season and, um, in terms of bacteria infection, fungal infection, is if you are going to do that too as well, you do have to be cautious because some parasites can actually enter the epidermis of the snake and infect the host that way. Um, especially with that high humidity, you are building up a perfect storm for that, especially with fecals in the area. Um, just something I, I thought I'd bring up in this topic too as well. Um, but in terms of the collection, I mean, we've got a lot of stuff going on right now, especially with the file snakes, which seem to have been growing in popularity. Um, we've gotten a number of inquiries related to the Cape files, as well as the forest files or cross-eye. And we've just started pairing everything up for the season. Um, more to kind of come with that, with some mm -hmm. uh, data logistics that Zach and I and, and Pay are crunching, if you will, uh, for a publication here in the future and i think everyone's going to be very in tuned and excited about that when that does come to term um but we've had a number of the file snakes lock up for the season we've also had a number of cocci or um, red mountain racer locking up too as well and really the only thing up at this point in time are a number of the different colubrids and i got to see a good friend last week uh clint bartley we stopped by my house too as well to kind of just touch base and go over some of our joint projects too as well. But for other than that, you know, the collection's pretty much down for the season other than just a, a few tropical colubrids and some of the boas and pythons that I have here in my collection. So it's quiet. It's quiet. Yes, <laughs> yeah. it's quiet. <laughs> no, it, it's weird 
at home, because uh, that's where I, I the students primarily take care of the collection here, and then the various animals at the house that are associated with the university, and then my personal collection I take care of obviously by myself at home, and I just have my grow outs, and like I can go through them and clean everything and feed everybody, and it takes like maybe 35, 40 minutes. And when the whole collection's ripping and roaring in about two months, it's going to take me about five hours. So <laughs> it's kind of weird. I always get done, and I'm like, there's no way I'm done. There's got to be something else I, I need to be doing. Um, and, but no, it is just a weird time. Well, and, you know, Zach, even from our conversation, man, what was it last week or the week before? I don't even know anymore. Time just flies. Yeah. But um, checking on water bowls. Mm-hmm. I did have a defecation in one of the water bowls of the animal that was brumating. So uh, I'm glad I checked go. that one. So, yeah, I checked all mine right after we recorded, and I had a, I had one as well. And so we we talked about do they shed, and I mentioned that how we had hognose snakes shed and brumation. I did. It's been such a wacky winter temperature wise, uh, and during. This last warm-up from Christmas to New Year's, uh, the, the corner that usually holds between 45 and 50 uh, got all the way up to like 61 or 2 for 2 or 3 days. And I had two snakes shed in the middle of brumation. And I was looking at um, social media, and there were pictures of people going to rattlesnake dens and seeing you know timbers out basking in January, like on the New Year's Day, like that's that's crazy. So I'm really curious to see how this year goes um, with that influence. And our our guest tonight has some. When it comes to brumation, we're definitely going to hit on his strategy, uh, and it has a lot to do with this weather that we've had and these observations that we're making. So well and. This is like the perfect storm to follow up with that podcast. Um, Chad and I started talking in the car on my way home, and I was like, whoa, 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 Chad, let's just hold off and wait for tonight and talk about this during the podcast. (laughs) So I think we're at a good point. What Mm -hmm. do you think, Zach, to start? Yes. So do you want to introduce Chad since you've known him? No, 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 you're, you're good. I'm good? Okay. Yeah. So... Like we said, uh, we have Chad Fuchs with us today. So, how you doing, Chad? You there? Good evening. Ah, awesome. So you've been in this for quite some time. Do you want to give uh, the listeners a little bit of a, a a taste for your your time in herpetoculture? Like, how'd you get started? Uh, how long you've been doing this? What have been your 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 focal species? Just kind of. Give us your background. Sure, a little bit. I think like most of us, I was five years old, moved in with my parents to their new house, and it was in a very uh, undeveloped area and spent all my days out in the woods and the fields and flipping rocks and found earthworms and garter snakes, and I chose the garter snakes. (laughs) Otherwise, I'd be an earthworm breeder, I guess. Yeah. I hear they make a lot of money, actually. And it's it's good fertilizer, (laughs) Mm -hmm. all the worm castings. So when was that? Was that like late 80s, 90s? That was, uh, let's see, I was five, 1980. Okay, there you go. And then uh, 
I was never allowed to keep a snake in the house. My mom to this day is still terrified of them. So I was only allowed to keep garter snakes or whatever I could catch on the back porch through the summers. And I think I was in third grade and I had a couple pregnant garters give birth and I went and bought several dozen minnows and got them fed and then released them all back into the wild and catched them, caught them. I went and catched and caught, caught them every, uh, every summer. And then oh, sixth grade, I was allowed to get a, a snake. My first snake that I bought was a yellow rat snake. Vicious thing. Um, <laughs> and then I got a corn snake. And then I was allowed to get another corn snake. Ended up with a pair of them in sixth grade. Got rid of the yellow rat snake because I was allowed to have three. And then I started getting my first eggs in uh, seventh or eighth grade. And I've bred corn snakes every year since. Well, wow, that's a lot of corn snakes. Well, it's not a lot in terms of number, just a lot of years, because I was never allowed to yeah. have more than two up until I graduated high school and then went away to school. And then the dorm room had, geez, I was 93. I got bearded dragons, veiled chameleons, leopard geckos, cocks, cooks or cocks, uh, day geckos, and then the whole closet, dorm room closet was a, I had a rack. Oh, cage master. Um, I forget his name. Greg Maxwell, I believe, oh. built my first uh, melamine rack system and kept it in the dorm room and got caught bringing them back <laughs> in after the winter break and had to move them all across campus. And then from there, I was allowed to have more than three. And now I think I'm working with 39 species currently. So at present, we... we what do you think your number is, or do you have a number of actual individual animals? animals. Mm -hmm. If I had to guess, maybe seven hundred. That's a lot of snakes. Well, it's it's not all snakes. I do have <laughs> awesome. I have turtles and tortoises, mm -hmm. and some geckos, but it is predominantly snakes. And I'm I I'm not into the big snakes, so I I've always been a colubrid person. Well, and that kind of brings it up into this, you know, one of our generality questions is why colubrids? I mean, because you have a diverse collection amongst many of us hobbyists, not only working with colubrids, but other species, too, as well. I think one size mm -hmm. and I two, I think just the color palettes. Um, you know, there was a time in the. Oh, late 90s through probably the early 2010, 2011, I was all about the morphs and the genetic mutations. And uh, now I'm switching back. I really just like the natural stuff, and I'm really getting into the locality animals now. I mean, I still have my morphs and everything, but I, I just enjoy all that different, I don't know, the different morphs and localities within the king snakes and the bull snakes and the gophers and the pines and even some of the rat snakes localities. Mm -hmm. I just, I find that fascinating. It just, I don't know, it just always rejuvenates. It's keeps you excited for me, at least. It's not. For so with, with the, the colubrids, you, would you mind giving us kind of a chronology of what, what your f focal groups were when, so like what, what was it like keeping colubrids in the mid-90s and then through the early 2000s and then through today? Uh -huh. Like, what was your focus? 
90s, I was a raging drunk, so I'm kind of a little blurry there. <laughs> that was during school. Gotcha. Um, you don't even know what you have. <laughs> yeah. I know I know. I was always enamored with the, uh, the Alterna. Okay. And 92, I got my first, first two pairs of Alterna from Lloyd Lemke. And I think it was 94... We had a very cold winter here, and I was brumating animals back then. And I had a female that was locked in her water bowl with probably a sixteenth of inch of ice over the water bowl, so she couldn't get out. Mm. And I didn't know this at the time, but then I started doing some research for the Milwaukee Public Museum while I was up in Stevens Point for a little while, doing uh, bull snakes, garter snakes, and fox snakes. And those animals will actually pop their cloacas to absorb air bubbles in their cloaca and that's how they would breathe underwater so I, after learning that i always try to get my colubrids as cold as possible in the winter if i could get them down into the 30s i tried it because i felt i still feel that the colder they can get the less energy less weight they're going to lose during the brumation period but then i was talking to somebody the other day and they were telling me that if you get gila monsters below 55 it can kill them but when I was mm -hmm. doing Gila monsters, they would get down into the low 40s, and I never had any issues with that. So I don't know. Who knows? Just, I guess, maybe from personal experience and humidity maybe has to something to play with that when they get yeah. that cold. Maybe they desiccate so much. I don't know. And then, so it took me into the gray bands, and then I got into the, ther I got heavily into the Therai. And then the uh, albino Nelson I came out, I think, in 96. Mm -hmm. That was the first big money I bought into one of those. And then I got an albino ball python in 98. Uh, hypo ball python. I think I paid $5,000 for my first pastel ball python. <laughs> um, and then the Hondurans came out. And then I think it was in 1998, we were at the, uh, the Orlando show before it moved to Daytona. And Klaus had these fake-looking snakes. <laughs> I thought they were just incredible looking. And I saw the price tag on them, and I couldn't afford it at the time. So the next year, in 99, I went back, and I wanted to buy a pair. And then he told me I had to buy two males to get a female. It was the cocci, the bamboo rats. Ah. Uh, and um, so I did. And, Chad, you remember that price? Yes. Because I do. 4500 <laughs> And you had to buy two males to get a female. Oh. Do you want to talk about who Klaus is, by the way? I never, well, besides meeting him there, um, he's from Germany, but Matt, you probably had a much better relationship. Yeah, Matt can definitely yeah. talk about it. Yeah, so Klaus, um, Klaus is really kind of the godfather, is what I would put or term his name with in terms of rat snakes. Um, you know, obviously, he has several publications in not only his main two monographs, which are collections of papers, with details oriented relative to Asiatic, European, um, American species too, as well of rat snakes. But Kloss had actually been published several times, well, not several, but dozens of times over many different species of rat snakes. And that was his passion. Um, Kloss was a good friend of mine and um, I miss him still to this day, especially with the conversations because he really led the industry in terms of captivating those rat snake species and if it wasn't for him we wouldn't have a number of these species 
especially founding stock, um, represented in today's hobby. You know, and there are still a number of species that aren't captively produced yet, but Kloss either kept them or had journals, um, publications representative of museums uh, specimens too as well. And for an, a number of that, when you really think about it, he was public publishing for the general public, not only the institutional researcher too as well. So he kind of broke the barrier in my eyes for the yeah. general public off of rat snakes. Yeah. So that's who you bought the bamboo rat snakes off of. Yeah, I thought they were fake. <laughs> and seriously, I mean, that was when I walked by them. I'm like, oh my gosh, those things were incredible. And then, yeah, I got into a lot of Cincta and Valenti and Pulchra and oh, geez, Cicula, Scolaris, a bunch of the Asian and European rats. And and I had started with some hognose in 1996, and then in 1998, uh, oh, I think it was 98. Um, Bruce Miller out of Reading Reptiles. I think I also got some Hondurans from him in California. I was able to get some pastel pink albino hognose from him. And then I found out about Richard Evans, and I was able to get some het males from him. Uh, and then I drove down there and picked out a pastel pink male. And this was, for me, a time when I was just cranking 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 trying to just overproduce and whatever but that little pastel pink male at five months old fathered a clutch to a nine-month-old female and she laid five good eggs four hatched they were all males um but there was a time when i was feeding almost every other day and I, now i it's i have a completely different Oh, routine, if you will. I will feed maybe, I still, I feed small meals. I still feed one to two times a week, but I never want to see a bulge in the animals from their meals. And the males, they'll only get one prey item where the females can get two to three. Again, this is just my belief. I think it's easier for the animals to expend energy to digest a smaller meal than a larger meal. And I think it just, I don't know. It, again, this is there's no proof behind it scientifically, but just for me, that's how it works. And then uh, let's see. Then I got rid of a lot of the other species of colubrids and went kind of crazy with hogs. Um, at one time, I had so what was kind of crazy? What was the I had over two hundred females number? breeders. <laughs> that's insane. Um, I don't know. I think. I think for several years, and I was limited on space because I was in a 12 by 18 foot room and it was almost all entirely hognose. I still had some corn, still had some rats, still had a couple kings, not many. And uh, then about 2013, 2014, I started weeding back on the hogs. And uh, now I've probably only got about 20 breeder females, maybe 25. And all the other species that I've gotten or had, I now have again. Not all, but the vast majority of them. And then a lot of species that I had never played with before, I now have. I mean, I was talk, telling Matt earlier, I've got some 
some Rex Nightline Everglades rats. Nasty buggers, but they are pretty. Mm -hmm. uh, Bear's rats, Subox, oh, Silverleaf, Kasachis, Nice. Gray rats, white oak phase gray rats, Russian rats, Jap rats. I'd like to get back into Citula again. And then uh, the Kings, I think there's Alterna, Mex Mex, Therai, Eastern Kings, Speckled Kings, Prairie Kings, Desert Kings, Mexican Black Kings, Cal Kings. I don't know if there's one or two I'm missing in there. I think there's four species of garter snakes. I've got California red sideds, checkers, Puget blue sound, uh, Puget, and what else? Oh, Oregon red spotteds. Nice. Let's see. I've got the Woma pythons, the spotted pythons, the blood pythons, the ball pythons. I dabbled with Bolins for a while. Uh, my female, let's see, I got her from Brian Sharp in 2011. She passed away about three years ago as an adult. She beehived up, thought she was going to lay eggs in a collaboration with Jeff Nemanius from Gateway City Reptiles, and she just never, never laid. Mm. And then, uh, let's see, the, the bull snakes, I've got Santa Cruz Island, Vertebralis, uh, Sonoran Gophers, multiple bull snakes, northern pines. I've got uh, Herman's tortoises, redfoot tortoises, Vietnamese leaf-breasted turtles, American spotted turtles, some uh, lychees and chihuahuas. And I think that's about it. So just for the viewers that have uh, extra Christmas money and are looking for somewhere to spend it, <laughs> you, you just have your list now. Uh, no, Chad, just joking around. I mean, it, that's an impressive collection. That's insane. You know, that's like five episodes worth of a collection. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, I've, you know, <laughs> I've got a lot of people to thank in this industry. You know, Matt, you're one of them. I mean, uh, a couple guys here locally, Phil and James and Evan. I mean, Jeff Nemanius and Scott and. Dave West and Tim Bailey, of course, has been a big help. And Travis Whistler's helped me in the past. I mean, Kim Bell's been a big help. There's, I mean, I'm, I'm forgetting a lot of people, but they've all been helpful and an influence to me. And they're part of where I've been able to achieve and get to. Not to mention the old Wisconsin Herp Society. That was the only way we could even, you were lucky to find somebody else that was breeding snakes and trade them. You know, as far as selling them back yeah. then, it was rare so chad if you don't mind you know obviously you kind of mentioned the explosion in hog nose and you know your name is brought up for a number of hog nose especially different morphs um that you've created even too over the years so what kind of pushed you into the hog nose uh, you know 1996 mark mark bailey i think is who i got some of my first hog nose from I just thought they were a cute little critter. Uh, they, I loved their size. Oh, you know what? I also, not to mention, I also have sand boas, and Brazilian rainbow boas, and ro and four or five localities of rosy boas. So, I'd never had like live bears except for the sand boas, and I got to witness a uh, Brazilian giving birth back in November, which I thought was pretty cool. All right, 
back to topic. I don't know. I think uh, <laughs> I just I like their size. Males again. I'm I'm more into the small snakes than I am the big guys, and uh, I just thought they were interesting little critter. I like the keeled scales. I like the show that they would usually put on the huffing and the pissing and striking mm-hmm. and. And then some of these morphs started coming out, and I think it was 2001. I had bred a het to a possible het because I had picked up two het males, I believe, from Richard. And I bred them, and I crisscrossed the females back to the non-father het male to prove them out. And my first clutch was eight eggs, six made it. I got three normals a pair of albinos and a paradox and from there it was wow let's see what we can make with these things Mm -hmm. and then the other morphs and brent came out with those anacondas the first codom i thought that was incredible and we jumped into those and went for the supers and i love i i personally love azanthic animals i just love the subtle grays whites charcoals blacks so for me, my favorite morph is still probably an Azanthic Superconda. Um, I haven't had all the morphs, but you know, I think there's so many morphs out now. I think it's fantastic. It's almost getting to the point where the corns are, where I don't know if you could have every single morph because you could just yeah, they- keep producing more and more double, triple, quadruples. That's the number one issue with the book. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned. Like I can I can write a killer natural history section. The captive husbandry section is gonna be great. And I'm not necessarily a morph guy. I'm not dissing morphs. It's just I'm I'm definitely a locality guy Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And then I started like you know talking to the editor and he was like, Okay, you're definitely gonna have to cover morphs in this book. And that's when I started to really kind of do a deep dive into the hog morphs. And I was just like, holy mother of God, there's a lot of them. <laughs> so, you know, in in yeah. Daytona this year, this past year, I was talking to Mitch Davey and, and, and the stuff that he has out and even Tom Harbin a little bit. I'm I'm so out of the loop on what's out there with morphs right now. I feel like a a newbie. <laughs> all the all the names that they're coming out with these doubles and triples and I'm like I have no idea what that is. <laughs> you know, yeah, right there. With back you, when I was doing it, it was you basically had your hypos, your pinks, your albinos, your azanthics, and maybe a little bit of the lambda was coming in, and then the uh, the anaconda, and then all right, you got enough to play there to get doubles and triple visuals from all those, but now you got the caramel and the pistachio and the the true hypo. I don't even know them all anymore. Sable. Yeah, Sable. Arctic. Well, there's there's Dutch hypos. Dutch yep. hypos. Evans hypos. Like that's just hypo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. I I thought so, my understanding yeah. was like the Dutch hypo and the hypo or Evans were were compatible, but I who know a caramel. Yeah. Well, there's there, yeah, and that's the other thing that's fun about the Morse with the hogs is that, and this is based off my limited amount of digging. Is there are some? There's a lot of debate with a lot of the morphs. Um, it's it's almost getting to the ball python level with some of this stuff, uh, where it's like a slightly different shade of yellow is this, and a slightly different shade of yellow is that, but they may actually biologically be the same thing or not. So yeah, that's yeah. 
for me, that, that gets a little beyond what I'm interested in. <laughs> and I understand people want to try to create their own and get their new morph and everything. But to me, if it's a lemon shade of yellow versus a banana shade of yellow, it doesn't mean it's a different <laughs> morph. Or different. It means it's yellow. Different gene. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember I had some really killer well, yellow hogs from a Kansas locality, and to this day, I've never, I haven't been able to find any that looked like it. Or I had really pretty oranges out of New Mexico, uh, greens out of Montana, reds obviously out of Texas, big bold black, dark contrast ones out of Minnesota. It's just, you know, I don't know. Every little thing, like you said, is just well, different. Well, and I think that even brings in some of the topics or discussions. I mean, you know, locality animals influence a number of these morphs more than what anyone really wants to discuss or talk 100%. about. 100%. And, you know, even in terms of some of this discussion, I mean, you talk about all these different albinos and hypos, but really they could all be amelanistic and they're just locality specific or gene specific i mean we just don't have enough information related to a number of those mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it just and i think that goes for a lot with a lot of different species and their mutations the colors it, it depends on the locality of the animal the base stock which you're trying to go for that contrast or that washed out the fadedness whatever you're trying to achieve the high yellow the high orange the high red um, I mean, even look at, even look at these, uh, what are these things? Uh, California red-sided garters. I've got mm -hmm. some that are just turquoise blue, absolutely gorgeous. And I've got some that are high red that for me, the blue is, those are the ones that I'm fascinated with. I love that blue color. Cause it's not a common color in snakes. You know, the high reds are still nice too. Cause I also love red, but for me, that blue, and that's, it's a small geographic area that this species comes from and to have that different type of contrast. I don't know. Maybe they're crossed with the San Francisco. I don't know, but I bought them as California red sided second F2 generations, but they're gorgeous in my opinion. Yeah. Same. I've looked at Infernalis for a while and I, I have to tell myself not to pull the trigger on. Them. Oh, they're, they're pretty. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, so I have a, we'll get back to hogs in yep. a minute, but I have a, a red side of garter question. Are yours a evil? Yes. Well, I shouldn't okay. say evil. <laughs> My, mine don't bite. Um, okay. I only, I have six of them. I have two trio, two trios, but they are feisty. They're flighty and they love to musk. Yes. But they do not bite. Yeah. I got into garters this past year. Uh, and I was looking at Infernalis and Consignus, the red spots. Red spots, yeah. And I, I like the, I just like the red spot look more. And I'm really happy I got those because mine are these inquisitive critters. Like you can, I keep them in a great big naturalistic viv just because they're fun that way. Uh, and I can open the enclosure and put my arm in there, and they'll like come out onto my hand, and I pick them up, and they, one of them will like literally shoot musk everywhere, but the other. Uh, I think I have 2.4. Um, all the other ones besides that one really don't must. They thrash like garters do, mm -hmm. but there's no biting in anything. And I thought, yeah, maybe I'll stick with these 
and avoid the bloodletting that Infernalis is notorious. Yeah, I haven't I haven't been tagged by mine. Um, okay. In fact, one of the big blue females is actually quite gentle. Uh, they're 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 twitchy, but they mm-hmm. they're not bitey. Um, like That's you, cool. I, I just had a, a stack of five three by two by eighteen with a shelf in the middle. Uh, made with drop downs and uh, it's all bioactive now with UVB lights in there and life plants uh-huh. and all that stuff. And I've got checkered uh, 1.3 group of checkers in one. I've got the two point uh, 1.3 uh, Oregon red spotted, 1.3 Oregon red spotted, two groups of 1.2 uh, Infernalis, and then I picked up some uh, Pugets this year in Daytona that I'm going to be putting in the bottom one. And I nice. I love like you said, you know, they're just they're not in the snake room yet, but they will be going in there. But <laughs> I just love coming down and watch them because they're always active during the day. They're cruising around. Yeah. They never stop moving. No. They're fantastic. It's like a nature documentary in your office. Yeah, and you, like you said, you open the drawer, and some of them, right away, their heads come up, and they cruise right to yeah. you. They're waiting to get fed. Mm-hmm. It's just a – I mean, a simple garter snake that I – even 10 years ago, I never even would have thought of keeping just because – that's what started it out, and I hated always getting musks on and feeding mm-hmm. them the earthworms and stuff. But everything eats mice. It's frozen thought, and they're easy, and they're inquisitive, and they're just – it's a different perspective for me than just keeping them in the rack systems. Yes. And I'm not saying no, I right like or wrong. It. That's just how I've always kept it. But I, I just – it's something new and exciting again. Different, different way to interact with these critters. So then – Let's segue back to the hogs yep, yep. then. When you were keeping hogs, what was your strategy? Was it like rack with aspen and water bowl, yep, or was yep, there? Yep, rack um, three, two and a half, three inches of uh, sanit chip or aspen chip. A uh, a water bowl with a coupler in there, so they wouldn't tip over with the. I just use disposable water bowls. I still do with the uh, lid with the hole cut in it. Okay. I still keep everything that way, except uh, two years ago I started buying those sheets of unprinted newsprint. And I'll, okay. depending on the size enclosure, I fold it in twos and I toss that in there, and that's now a hide for them. And if they crap on it, whoosh, throw it away. And then also paper nice. towel tubes and wrapping paper tubes and toilet paper tubes. And especially with the hatchings, I'll cut the little tubes in half and just have them folded over, and it's a little hide for them now. And I never used to provide hides. I I think they enjoy it because a lot of them will sit underneath those hides now. Or in with the paper, too, yep. and there's different layers of the paper they can get into. But still fairly simple, fairly easy to clean and navigate through and wash. and Not too elaborate, except for these garters. But hopefully. So, so Chad, in terms of temperature, what did you keep your hogs oh, at? That's what boy, I back... Because, you know, this is kind of a topic that comes up all the time in terms of keeping hogs. Yeah, I used and, to. I mean, you and I have talked about this all, you know, there's so many different ways to do I this. used to have, again, just uh, the heat rope or the heat tape, however you're eating it with the belly heat. That's how I've, I still keep them. But I used to give them a hot spot like balls, 95 degrees. Now, none of my colubrids really, I, I'm not a person that likes heat. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't. I try to keep the room as cool as possible. If I can keep it in the mid high 60s, that'd be great. Usually in summer, it does creep into the mid 70s, though. So that's the ambient. 
and then um, nothing really gets above 82 degrees now. Which is something I, I, I find interesting because you do find some information across, you know, in reading. You hear about the hot temperatures. You hear about the cooler temperatures. I've even read across with keeping males significantly cooler than females. Yeah, you yeah, know, and, and again, again, I've, I've forgotten a lot of people that have helped me out along the ways. But even Don Soderberg told me years ago, don't keep your males too high. You'll kill the sperm. And also, you don't want to keep the females too warm because after they breed, if you put them into a warm environment, that can kill the sperm too. And uh, I used to keep a lot of the corns in the mid-80s. And my fertility was, now I look at it, it was it was garbage. It was crap fertility. Now, uh, because I keep them cooler, I have had much higher fertility success. And incubation with eggs too. I won't. My incubator set at 78. It'll usually creep up to 79, but uh, I just had a clutch of Everglades rats, Mexican black kings, and Honduran milks that were laid in September, just hatched last month. 90, 91 days they took to hatch, mm -hmm. which is a little bit longer than normal. And I bet those... But you, oh, yeah, and I bet those hatchlings are huge they're, Oh, they're, they're giants. And usually they, I usually go around 72 to 75 days, but for whatever reason, these, these, and these were all second clutches, but they just took a lot longer to, to hatch than the first clutches. I don't know why, because the, the temperatures were still there. But I, uh, I reduced temperatures on incubation a few years ago as well. Again, a different perspective. You know, I'm not in a hurry to crank stuff out anymore. So I'm not keeping them warmer. I'm not power feed and whatever you want to call it. I just do it at their pace and if they're happy. They're happy. At least that's what they tell me. So with the temperature in the hogs. <laughs> yes. One of the things I've got quite a few of them too. Uh, and I haven't been keeping them anywhere near as long as you have. I've had them for like four or five years. Uh, and I have noticed that, and I don't know, and this could be an artifact of where I live in my house. So I'm going to lead with that. When I drop the heat, the thermostats down into the 80s, like you're saying, mine just completely, and this is a cross tax. I have all of them. I've got Southerns, Easterns, Mexicans, and Westerns, Plains Hogs, or Westerns, whatever you want to call them. Um, all the species of heterodon, will, you know, they'll, they'll stop eating for a week or two, which is fine. You'd expect that with a temperature drop. But then they, they just won't eat the way they will when I'm holding them at like 90, 95 and I'm on your team. I don't want to keep things that hot. I, there's all kinds of problems that can arise from keeping things that hot. And I've thought about this a long time. And I think what might be happening with mine is I've had them since they were literally a week old, all, or with the exceptions of the, um, the Simus, because those little bastards are expensive <laughs> they're pretty <laughs> and I, yeah and i was like i got those from kevin fisher and i was like there is no way that we're going to be getting these animals unless they are like pounding pinkies given the price tag so they were a little bit bigger than normal than i normally would get but i think that because i started them off hot that kind of equilibrated to normal and getting the them down to a lower temperature as these little guys in, in feeding, it just seems to like throw them out of whack. The 
that this tank right here is actually a hognose snake, and he... The big ones, I don't have a problem with adults, sub-adults, juveniles. Um, well, but my, like, neonates up to about a year old, it just seems like we started them warm, and now they have to be warm. And so in response to that, this year, we've actually kept the young, the 2021s, at a lower temperature, and they're slamming food like gangbusters, and we're holding them at 80. <clears throat> so do you think there's anything to that, or is this just no, no. the vortex of doom that is West Virginia? No, like, what the my beliefs or my thoughts on that are, I think, just like with, with any species, I think you just have to let them get accustomed to their environment. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you bring in some older animals and they've always been brumated, it may take two, it might only take a year, but it might take two years to get them off that brumation cycle where, again, I don't brumate any longer. I want to start again, though, just to get the time off, but um, I didn't do it this year. Next year, I probably will start brumating again, but I think it just, you get them accustomed to your environment. Yeah, that's what that's, I was kind of getting Kicks at. them off and they'll be good to go. The only reason why I had a, I had a hard time letting them go is that they were going off feed for like three, four, five weeks, so I was losing a lot of growth. Sure. That was the... The, the, and I was kind of like, I don't want these. Not that, not that I, I don't think you can stunt a hog. Once they start eating, they, they, again, it seems like they just pound food and grow like weeds. Yes. Um, but we were also trying to get them to size for breeding projects here at the school, and that was kind of counterintuitive. But yeah, so basically, it does. So you're basically saying that they do kind of acclimate to the temperature, and when you you change it. That's what causes to, to their environment. I think so. That's that's yeah. my belief is that you get them accustomed to your environment or your surroundings and your your way of keeping. Again, if you can start them, I, I prefer to always get young ones because you can start them off from mm -hmm. the get go in your environment and raise them up to how you're going to keep them always. But if you so, switch it, like you said, you know, you've always had those adults at 90, 95, and now you're trying to reduce the temps a little bit yeah they're going to run into issues because for them maybe they're just thinking it's heading into fall with that five mm -hmm. ten degree drop consistently i i don't know just so one of the fun things about hogs is it seems like if you got a clutch of 10 eggs maybe six to eight of them take to the pinkies without any problem and then you've got the others <laughs> and there's there's a million little tricks of the trade, and I always like asking hognose snake people, like, get, how do you get your babies started? Well, I, any... I, back in the day, I used to do a lot of, uh, I still have a container of these little toads I got. They've got to be 15 years old. Just freeze them with a little bit of water. They still work if I need to. Um, but the last two years, I haven't sent it at all. Again, I haven't been cranking out hundreds of yeah. them. But I think it also goes along the lines with the Therai and the Alterna line breeding. I wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily, especially back in the days, because I had done a lot of line breeding, or I don't know if you call it line breeding, but selective breeding for feeding response on the Therais. And I wasn't always nice. necessarily holding back the, the, the most spectacular, the prettiest ones out of the clutch, but the ones that ate immediately on frozen thawed and um, 
most of my gray bands now, if, you know, if I hatch out 30 gray bands, I'll be shocked if 25 of 30 don't take on Frozen Thawed Pinks, the first offering. And I truly believe with the Hognose, the Therais, the Alternas, that that is genetically inherited. Oh, I, yes, 100%. We, we share a brain, dude. Like, <laughs> that is literally, I don't care what the little thing looks like. Right, right. I want the one that pounds. I want food. the one that's going to thrive. It could be, yeah. I know it's got genetics in there. It's just not expressing it. But I can bring that out later mm -hmm. on. I just want to. I want. I don't want to pull my hair out because I can't get these things to eat. Or spend a lot of. Well, and then well, when you have that many animals, uh, you can't. Yeah, that too. It's hard spend to a lot of time away. farting around with them. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's part of you know the whole responsible breeding of these animals in captivity. It's something ethically us as keepers and breeders really need to look forward in the future on what we're actually trying to um, achieve going forward with some of these and what is the best way to pursue Absolutely. that. I think uh, especially, especially as, well, like we were talking earlier, the, the boon and popularity of the, the reptiles in general, how many people are getting into these? I think last year, Reptiles outpace cats and dogs for the first time in history, in the uh, the industry categories, and so you get you get animals that can be problematic, and you get a first time buyer, that can turn them off for life. Yes, but if you've got a, a solid feeding animal, get that experience with them as they get more animals. Yeah, they're going to run into it eventually, but you'd hate to have it for a first time keeper to have. The problem feeders or the frustrating feeders. You want them to be pound, pound, pound. That's why, again, nothing, there's a lot of good first-time species, but I am really biased towards Mexican black kings as a first-time species. I mean, yeah, there's one, one or two morphs out there, but it's a black snake. It eats incredibly well, and it's very docile as an adult, at least all the animals I work with. Again, you always have the exceptions. It's like people. You get some cranky ones or some feisty ones but <laughs> it's i don't know the mbks have just been i absolutely love that species it's they just hey chad if you don't mind me asking what kind of pushed you to move away from bermating animals for what's, the what's that what was the big push that why did you move away from bermation as a tactic and how are you pursuing that now in your collection i mean obviously you live in the midwest where we do have Long yeah, it was three degrees yesterday. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I think honestly, in two thousand nine, we had we had moved into a new house, and we had I don't know what it was. I just I never took the time to like stop feeding and keep the records of when their last meals were, and so I just slowed down the feeding. I figured, oh screw it, but by the time I give them their last meal and put them into brumation, it's going to be January already. So I just kept them up, but I re really reduced their food intake. But I did not touch a thermostat, okay. and I didn't touch the light cycle. So that stays consistent. I, I give them 14 on, 12, 14 on, 10 off every day. Light or light. heat? Heat, heat, heat okay. is the same. Heat does, I don't do any night drops. Heat is constant, 24-7, 365. And then... Um, we had success with that in, in the 2010 breeding season, so I just went with it from there forward. 
And then I really don't know why, Matt. I don't know why I haven't gone back to brewmation. I've been saying I'm going to do it for the last couple of years, and I haven't done it. I just maybe it's because I just like to look at the animals on a on a weekly basis. I don't know. It's, it's it's something that I would like to get back into because I can keep all the juveniles and and, and sub adults still up and still brewmate the adults, which would be a lot not not a ton less time, but it would be some less time because I again I'm only feeding maybe one or two times a month. So it's not like twice a week feedings where they're, and you know, like Colubrids, you feed them once, they crap twice. So it's just that break. So then how long do you do that feeding? Usually after like the, the, the low, usually feed. after duck season closes. So sometime around Thanksgiving up until probably February or even March before I kick it back into full gear again. And again, and when you kick it, oh, I was going to say, and by kicking, it means I don't, again, I, I'm yeah. not touching the thermostats. I'm not touching the lights. I just, just offer more frequent feedings. And, and so is it, does it go from like a twice a month to three times a month? The, no. And then the next month you're normal or do you just go right it, back? It's to like normal? a switch. It, it's mon- okay. I try to feed uh, Sundays or Mondays and Thursdays. Okay. And um, that's well, you just completely negated the last episode of Colubrid and Colubroid Radio. <laughs> so, what do you mean? That's pretty what do you awesome. mean? <laughs> we did this great big brumation thing and talked about all the biology, and they got to get cold. And um, yeah. So again, if 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 I do, do cool again, my belief is, or I, the colder the better for them. Okay. Um, so are you saying then that like you don't brewmate, but do you think that brewmating does have a benefit? I think it does. Okay. I think it does. I think it's just they're not, you know, in nature. I shouldn't say that. You know, in the southern part of the country, I don't think a lot of them brewmate. Up here, absolutely. I mean, they're... What's interesting is what you're talking about with the food cycling could be what they're, what a, what's happening in the south. Yes. Potentially. Yes. You know, they're going to get their cold spells, so they're not going to be out roaming around a lot. It's mm-hmm. not going to be too cold where it's detrimental to them, but all of a sudden they get their warmer days. And again, it could be 50 degrees out, but sunny. They get on a rock or some darker surfaced area. I mean, they'll heat up to 80, 90 degrees, no problem. And they're yep. ready to rock and roll. The light cycle, I don't know. I guess I haven't put too much thought in the light cycle. I've just always kept it. Timer goes on at 7 goes off at nine i just i don't know i, I really haven't put That's too much it. thought into the light cycle to be honest that's just normally when i'm getting up and seeing down there and forward leaving and lights are on i can check everything and then come home and still have a couple hours to get in there granted i usually have to still hit the the switches to to turn the lights on to work at night but Hey, Chad, just talking about lighting, because you and I have talked about this in the past. Are you um, doing anything with full spectrum lighting? I am, I am not right to... now. That's one thing I've been thinking about okay. putting into the uh, fixtures. Again, I just use, uh, I've got eight foot fluorescence throughout the rooms. And I don't use, 
I use almost all vi I use almost all vision tubs. So V18s, V35 shorts, V35s, V70s. So they're the the opaque ones. So they can still see the lights. I don't know if the UV would penetrate that or not. Um, on the garter snake cages I told you about, that does have them. It's got the Arcadia lights in there. We'll see yeah. what that's going to do. But I think that's more for the plants more than anything and the other creatures that are crawling through there or whatever. But I don't think it can hurt. <laughs> it doesn't Especially hurt. for the diurnal animals. If you get a coil UV light, which basically is like a spot of UV, mm -hmm. um, that's what I have in mind. And I think it's really kind of... There's something going on there. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to say what it is. But I have a coil in my red-spotted enclosure. And I've got other naturalistics that have the coils. And when the coils come on, what's interesting is the snakes will actually go to that first and coil up underneath it and just lay there. No heat. For like the first hour of the day. And then they go to heat. But that light, and that, that but, light puts off no heat. But that light bulb might be letting out less heat. And they're going to that because it has less heat, and then they're gravitating to the more heat, which means that the UV has nothing to do with why they're there. Or they could be going there because there's something with the UV that they like. But I've, I've, yeah, we're going to be diving here at the school into That's UV probably next year with snakes. What now? When you say the coil, it's more of a uh, focused light then versus a broad, yeah, okay. mm -hmm. almost like a spotlight. Yep. yep. Hmm. Yeah, these are just. Uh, fluorescent UVB lights that broad, yeah that broadcast the whole enclosure so I haven't I don't know they, they're those rascals are so active they're just all over the cage all the time <laughs> and you walk up to them and some of them come right up to the to the plexiglass door and they look at you and they raise their head up off the ground it's feed me I'm like all right calm down yeah let me thaw these things out first <laughs> That's interesting. I, yeah, I never thought about hey, that. Hey, Yes. Uh, just in terms of your overall collection, something we really haven't talked about is quarantining mm -hmm. animals um, and quarantining animals responsible, um, acquiring new animals and proper procedure for acquiring animals. Do you want to kind of dive into your procedure? Yeah, and, what and your, I, I, um, I've been guilty of not following through on my procedure at all times sometimes. Um. I'm in the process of, of getting a new building built and the quarantine area is going to be completely outside that building. It is going to be in a separate location away from it. But normally, normally the quarantine animals are the absolute last animals you ever deal with. You know, you do your main collection first. I never was a big proponent of those disposable gloves. I've been using those for the last two or three years now. Um, I, I just get everything from a local restaurant supply shop and buy them by the case and whoosh, 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 rip them off real easy. But I think new animals coming in, and again, I'm, I've been lax on it because I get them from friends and I think everything's good and whoops, I guess not. <laughs> so I think it is critical that you do quarantine um, from your main collection. And I would say at least three months longer if there's any issues whatsoever whether it be in the shedding cycle the feeding cycle the, the the defecations any of that stuff 
I don't know. It's just you. Even with the rodent business, you know, it was it was a closed colony. We didn't we didn't bring enough. We only started with 128 females, and at the end we. Had, well, hey Chad, real quick before you talk about that, you want to bring that up because Zach doesn't know about that. And I'm sure a lot of our viewers don't even know about that. Um, just to introduce what you had previously done. Well, I was in in corporate sales. <laughs> And then, <laughs> well, and, I mean, and, with and the then, rodents, and then, <laughs> and then the company was bought out by Xerox, and I had a choice to either stay on or or leave. I said, "See ya." So okay. we started a rodent business. A friend of mine and I in 2012, oh. and uh, we bought a a 10,000 square foot building and started with, like I said, 128 female rats, and at the end, I think we were close to. I think 11,000 breeder females. And then uh, the mice, I don't remember. I think I think we had over 15,000 breeder female mice. We were cranking out around 70,000 animals a month. And um, Dan and Christina Ardsma now own it, and I still get all my rodents from them. And they kept the name, and it's still going, same location. And But we were adamant that our founding colony, that was it. We weren't going to introduce anything, and if... If any live animals got shipped out, no live animals were allowed inside that building. Absolutely none. Just because a lot of these animals were lab animals, so they don't have a lot of immune system buildup. And any little hiccup, two weeks, you'd be out of business. Just What's the name of the company? C-Squared Rodent Supply. C-Squared Rodent And they're right in Racine, Wisconsin. And they can ship live or frozen in the upper mid. Well, I shouldn't say that. Live, I know they can ship Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, and the greater St. Louis area, but they can ship frozen throughout the country. But I don't know. I don't know. It's just uh, that quarantine is just, and I think the larger the collection, it becomes even more critical. For me, at least. Because if you get a bug through there, oh, my gosh, it's try to treat you know it's one thing treating a couple animals but then you're going to tens of animals or hundreds of animals or even thousands of animals it could be a a never-ending process and then you can have asymptomatic that yeah carriers once it gets in there and you're never going to know who has what unless you test them all yes and you get false positives and false negatives and there's just like you can avoid all of that. It's it, it's <laughs> such cheap insurance quarantine. to quarantine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's it's ugh, yeah, it becomes a nightmare. So I would say, you know, I do a minimum of three months. Ideally, I think a lot of people try to do six months, and I think it also depends on, for me, who I'm getting them from. Um, but. Yeah, the last last few acquisitions has been all they're still in quarantine. It's just I don't know. Can't take chances anymore. I don't know. Do you have any questions? And and Chad, it, no, in, in terms of quarantine, do you do fecals? Do you do anything? I do. I um in, in I terms do. Of I've got a couple of microscopes. I've got an old one. Uh the reason I bought the old microscope, and when I say old, I bought it brand new. Uh Terry Dunham from Tricolors turned me onto it this this had to be 94 uh i still use it but it was to check sperm mobility in breeding 
So I would actually take the animals out of their enclosures, put them into another enclosure on newspaper, and as soon as they got done um, getting their magic, getting their groove on, I'd soup up that uh, gooey mess and throw it on a slide and check for mobility. And if there wasn't a lot of mobility or it was a lot of swimmers, I'd either swap males or I'd say, all right, we're going to get some good clutches. That then turned into getting, uh, I think it's a, you buy it by the gallon. I think it's called Ficasol. And then you get, you get mm -hmm. these little containers with a pop thing and uh, you mix it with the Ficasol. You put the, the, the fecal in there in the solution and then you can let it sit. Take your slide, tap it to the surface, put that under the microscope, and then you can do all the checks. So I've got a newer microscope now that you can hook up to your phone, and then you can text everything and take pictures. And um, a lot of the stuff I can—I shouldn't say a lot—the common stuff I can identify. There's still stuff that I need to have help with, or send out and ask questions on. But thankfully and fortunately, I don't run into a lot of that. And then, um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, so there's, yeah, there, I mean, both microscopes work as long, I think at 400 power is what you need minimum to see a lot of that stuff. The way that we found out when we had our, our crypto infection back in the day was, uh, I, I didn't think about talking to a, a vet. We did talk to vets. I'm not saying don't talk to vets. Talk to yes, vets. but uh, I have three microbiologists that share a hallway with me, and two of them study pathogenic organisms. So I basically walked down the hall and was like, "I don't know what's going on. Can you tell me what to do?" I mean, this is before I even knew like crypto got in snakes. That's how early in the infancy. And the one of the microbiologists said, um, "Well, you need to go down there and into the micro lab, which has fifty microscopes in it." And let's try to figure out what, what you got, and then we'll know what to do with the scope. And very quickly, we looked in the reptile vet book, and it you know, everything was pointing towards crypto. And with crypto, you do something called an acid fast stain, which sounds really fancy. <laughs> but if you have the kit, it's literally like baking a cake. Like, there's instructions, and you, like, stir up the, the feces, and you add reagent one and you let it sit for two minutes and then you heat it and add reagent two and it was a really kind of straightforward process and what was interesting is that's how we diagnosed crypto in our collection was we saw the spores underneath the microscope uh and in that process the crypto spores are bright red and everything else is blue and so i then moved on once i learned how to do it uh i grabbed every kid i could <laughs> They all got a scope, they all got snake poop, and it was like a acid-fast stain assembly line. And we were able to do the entire collection and literally be able to see the crypto and say, all right, this one has it. This one, not seeing it doesn't mean it doesn't have it. That just means it didn't have it in that, that field of yes. view. We don't talk about microscopes as a tool for snake keepers, and I agree with you 100%. One of my friends online, Jen Archer, and I'm doing some work with her with crypto. That's how she does her collection. Is she just literally does fecal examinations with everything? It's amazing what it'll tell you, or what mm -hmm. what what can pop out of that poop. 
And it's that that Ficasol stuff. I, I think you know I got a gallon of it. I think it's I think it's in here. Um, it's not expensive. I just got it all on Amazon. Hmm. And same with same with yes. this. It's a do fecal yeah. floats. And, and then the, the the tubes are you buy them by like in fifty boxes of fifty or a hundred or whatever, and they're just little floats. And then you get your slides and your and it's it's quick. It's easy. Yeah. It doesn't take long. Anybody who has a wild caught in their collection that thinks it doesn't have something, it does. Just do a fecal. <laughs> You'll, it's like the Amazon river basin as far as diversity of life is concerned, and that snake's crap. Because uh, anything that eats insects or amphibians early on in their life cycle, fish. the parasites of the world, fish, yeah, that, 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 those are all intermediate hosts to Lord knows what. Um, well, even if you're feeding live rodents, yeah. even, and depending on where you're getting live rodents yeah. from, you'd even be surprised about... Even frozen. Um, mice mites. Yeah. Yeah, because you'll... I mean, doing a fecal, you'll you'll show up the the mites in the fecal mm-hmm. that have come from the actual respective mouse. But you know, the most people aren't interested in that, if you no. will. Um, but I, I think it brings a whole nother level, if you will, to the keeping of this, especially you know when you have a large collection, or you know you have a significant investment in an animal or maybe a rarer species of animal in your collection, it, it, it shouldn't be a what if it really should be a, let me double check this. What's, sort what's of lurking? Situation. What's mm-hmm. lurking? Cause it's, and a lot of times if you get those slides done the right way, you can take that to a veterinarian. Um, and then the veterinarian can look at like with the acid fast stains, the way we did them, they were permanent when we were done. So we actually, I'm pretty sure we have some slide trays in this building right now that have the crypto samples from 2018. Um, but no, that microscopy stuff can be a lot of fun, actually. It can be a lot of fun, and at the same time, it can be slightly terrifying when you realize all the things that are crawling around inside it, the damn snake. It, yeah, it, it takes <laughs> practice, especially like you said with some of the prey items. I mean, you, you, the first time I remember looking at them, I'm like, this is out of, there's, there's stuff everywhere, all different shapes, yeah. and different sizes. And <laughs> it was just like, I don't even know what I'm looking for, which, uh, is it Mater's book that big, big, yes, that's yeah, the, that's the big black mm-hmm. one, right? Yeah. Yep. That, it's got an iguana, I think on the cover. Yeah. It's like cover. two inches thick. That's yes. That's got beast. everything in it. That's, that's my go-to for looking up stuff up. Yep. Um, and I think that also ties into veterinarians. I mean, I had a, we had a local vet here, somewhat local, 45 minutes away from me, and he was absolutely fantastic. He's still around. He just moved out of state. But uh, he was the person that suggested I get that second microscope where I could hook my phone to it because I would just snap a picture, text it to him. If I couldn't identify it or if it was something I needed medication for, and then he would just ship me the medication. And I absolutely loved it. It was a great relationship. And I didn't have to pay the $150 visit just to walk in the door just for them. And, again, I don't want to sound negative, but a lot of the vets in our area really don't focus on reptiles or amphibians. They are mammalian or they're, they're birds or they're livestock. Mm-hmm. And so to find somebody in your area or within 
a close proximity of your area and try to develop a relationship with your vet is, is I, I don't think can be understated enough. Well, and, and going off of that, you know, I, I've made posts on social media about fecals and testing and, and going through my entire collection. But going off of veterinarians, if you don't have a local veterinarian, I do recommend looking at universities that do have a veterinary yes. college because you are also, and having come from education too, I think it's powerful and provides information, especially for students that are studying veterinarian science to understand some of these different fields, because oftentimes you'll, you'll get an interest or inquiry into that. And it may even expose different facets that you may have not even gone through. For instance, I go to Purdue University just because I lost, you know, my local rep vet. And it was great because the person who's actually the head of the veterinary science department is actually an avid oh, reptile that's awesome. fan and loves. So, you know, it, it was just like by coincidence how this worked out. And then you find out he's involved with radio tracking of rattlesnakes, all this kind of stuff. And and it builds that relationship too. But just the fact that you don't have a, a veterinarian, I do recommend also looking at veterinary college and, and do see if they will accept reptilian animals too as well, because not only are you um, getting an extraordinary level of care by going there, you're also teaching future veterinarians about the animals since there isn't much in terms of some of these different animals and the proper procedures and veterinary science. Yes. Too as well. and, 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 and that's something I'm going to be actually, it's a great point you bring up because a, a, another friend of mine has a great relationship with his local university and they, they bring their students out to tour his facility and do samples on all his animals. And um, I think cool. it's a great. And if you don't have a university, the next, the, the third option would be, I think, uh, doesn't Mater install, is install in Virginia or West Virginia? You can actually mail samples to them or even or even I'm ship animals sure. to them. Or, or yeah, have, there's definitely not in West Virginia, but it could maybe be in Virginia. I, but there's also, I got to look this I think, up real quick. You gotta I was going to say, talking. I think Mater's in Colorado and Stahl's in Virginia. But I think they'll, they'll also do phone consultations if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they, I have come across this, and I, I do remember reading something about this, too, as well, Chad. Um, you know, there are, for a number of these things, or for fecal checks, there are companies out there that do offer this service. And if you don't have local access, or even just brand new animals you're bringing into your collection, this isn't a bad no. investment. This is actually a security investment. It's mm -hmm. Especially if you have a it large is cheap collection. insurance. Yes. Mm -hmm. And on the subject of vets, if you're listening to this and think, oh, I need a vet, if you go to ARAV, A R A V dot org, that's the Association of Reptile and Amphibian Veterinarians. I'm looking at their website right now. There's a green button that says find a vet. And if you go through that, if you are an ARAV member as a veterinarian, this is a professional society that veterinarians can belong to, that obviously means 
that you are a veterinarian that is intrigued and interested in reptiles and amphibians. So this is a good way to get around the like constant issue people in herpetoculture have, which is my vet doesn't work with snakes and I don't want to take them there because it's a waste of money. Um, ARAB's good. And then on that subject of what I just said, most veterinarians are taught in vet school, if you don't know anything about reptiles and amphibians, collaborate with somebody that's an ARAB. So I, not that long ago, before I got back into herpetoculture, actually, this is actually a long time ago, now I'm thinking about it, it was when I was in high school, so yeah, a while ago. Um, I started off with the best reptile to start off with, a green iguana. Ooh, fantastic. And <laughs> that's being facetious. Uh, and um, I had the only freaking green iguana to decide not to eat. And so we took it to the vet and uh, the vet literally said here in Northern West Virginia, like, I don't know how to take care of that, but wait a minute. And that they, they were looking up, you know, reptile vets through something similar to this back in the day. So now we have this, uh, I'm fortunate too, to have a good reptile vet and having a good reptile vet at your disposal. Like you guys said, is it is it's amazing. It's, it's a peace of mind um, because it just, it gives a peace of mind. That's really nice. And especially once you start accumulating so, or collecting more than one or two specimens, mm -hmm. you, you know, as your collection builds, it's oh, it, it, it's a lifesaver. Well, and even off of that, I mean, this even goes back to one of our earlier episodes with Chaz, where he, Chaz owns a shop, and for all his new keepers, he gives the new keepers a journal. Because what are the typical things a veterinarian is going to ask is, when was their last shed cycle? When was the last time they ate? When was the last time they defecated? And it's good to have records of some of this stuff. It's tricky when you have a large collection, don't get me wrong. But for some of this, especially some of our viewers that may be listening that have smaller collections or are looking at rarer, um, more obscure species, having this information is, I mean, you can't put a, a dollar figure to it because it's just so valuable. Yes, and I would say, you know, as your collection grows and they become larger collections, as long as you're in tune with your collection, I use a lot of dry erase markers, and I use a lot of uh, Velcro and labels on the fronts of the tubs. But if you start noticing things going kittywampus, that's the ones that I'll start putting little marks on. So it's kind of a reverse journal if you will i'm only going to pay attention to the ones that i'm starting to notice something on i.e runny stool poor shed cycle you know I, who knows i mean lethargic uh folded skin mm -hmm. whatever it may be um and i think no and i do the same thing with masking tape just that, right or yep. painter's tape the right blue, across the front I, of the, the tub and, of the blue tape are, i've got yeah. them yeah, on a lot of those cages, too. Those are all my temporary ones until I can get to the computer and print out because I just use those name badges and then just a Velcro. And and all my females are on white paper and all my males are on orange paper. So I can look anywhere in the room and immediately identify who's male, female. And then also I've got another little thing that goes on the side that all my male tags are. And those are on. So the center tag is in the center or the. The ID tag is in the center of the tub. I have a small dot Velcro I put on the right side of the female's tanks 
and then I have the male extra male tags made up, but just smaller. It doesn't give any history. It's not what year it's born, who the breeder was, locality, anything like that. It's just what it is identified as. So Alterna, Five Mile Sanderson, number two male. And I'll print out two or three of those. Mm -hmm. And then those go on the two or three females that that male is going to breed to this coming season. And then I turn it ver perpendicular if he's in the tank. So I know exactly where he's at. And I just, stuff. I don't know, I just try to make it ways to be more efficient, if you will, less time. Oh, I got to think about who's in here, who's I breeding this to? So I just, I try to make it as simple as possible. But you're right, man. I mean, I've got rolls of that blue painter's tape because that all gets handwritten out, slapped on the front until I get to the tags made permanently. That's, yeah, <laughs> it's invaluable. I've got green, I've got yellow. I've got red and I've got blue painters tape, but blue is the majority. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And it's cheap and it's easy and it and it resticks nicely. Not like masking tape, which fades over time. That that painter tape oh, you can yeah. pull off and re put on a dozen times and it's still tacky. So Chad, just in terms of um general keeping even too how do you manage such a large collection if you don't mind uh i'm fortunate now that this is what i'm doing full-time and then so do you split it up between multiple it's days five days a week um, um i'm in the process like i said of building that building and we're doing a collaboration with some guys here locally that in the ball python so they will also help because I'm not going to be able to manage a, a collection. I'd like to get two colubrid rooms the size I currently have. And my goal is I'm lucky and fortunate right now. My daughter does all my tub cleaning for me. And then I also have another friend's daughter and they just get, you know, they're, they're cheap labor. And my, my time is better <laughs> spent working on the animals versus cleaning tubs. But we've all done it. We all have to do it still. I mean, I still do clean tubs. I mean, if you're not in tune with the animals, you're liable to miss something. So it's, it's, yeah. Well, you know, and, and that's something that always gets brought up to me is, you know, I have a large collect. I, I was downstairs when I was with Clint and we were talking and I was counting and I'm like, man, this year I'll have 300 breeding animals, you know, and, and that's not holdbacks. That's not hatchlings, anything that, from last year or those are the before, ones that are going this year you know and right and the question came is well why don't you hire someone to help you and to be honest you can't trust anyone to give the same never. level of care that you are they're, going they're to never give. gonna do it as good as you they just they don't have the heart into it they don't have the monetary into it they don't have the passion into it it's it's you're always going to give better care than anybody else will to your own animals. However, I still think when you get to a sizable collection, you do need people to go through and maybe spot clean and maybe water. Mm -hmm. But I always want to be the ones to feed, and I always want to do the pairings. Always, always, always. Because then I can go back and just check mm -hmm. everything. Plus, while I'm in there feeding or pairing, so you're going to notice things as well. 
I know there's going to be listeners that are curious about this. So since you are literally a professional snake breeder. Well, I wouldn't say that so. just yet. <laughs> All right, well, you're, you're getting there. If this is what you're doing full time, what's a, what's a normal day look like? I uh, get up like, around 6.20, drop my daughter off. We leave for school at uh, about quarter to seven. I come back. I usually uh, take a stroll through the through the yard, check for animal tracks or animal signs. I'm back down here in the room thawing mice, rodents out, usually by 7.30. And then I'm going through and well, I always feed the turtles first. They get fed first thing. They're always number one priority because they get, they get fed usually, depending on the species, two to three times a day. Uh, and also depends on the age of the turtles. Geckos usually every morning they get they get their food swapped out, and then it's just going through and uh, I try to do sections. I've I've got them. I'm reorganizing the room, but I've I'm trying to do it by species. So king snakes are in these racks on the left mm-hmm. side of the room. Then you've got the hog nose in the back center of the room, and then you've got the the rosy bows in the in the right side back of the room and then you've got your milk snakes on the right side of the room and then you've got the corn snakes further on the right side of the room the pituophis are even further in the right front side of the room turtles are in the however you're going to align it but i try to make it as efficient yeah. so i have a routine so i can just go through and know all right today i need to get through these five racks i want to clean i want to feed i want to check um However, it may be, and honestly, I usually don't get through the full routine every day. But hmm. again, I also—it's a pain in the a pain in the cheeks. But I did a lot of uh, construction paper, <laughs> and I took a paper slicer and I cut up green paper, red paper, yellow paper into like one-inch squares. And then you got to place them in the lamination. Then I laminated them all, and then I cut them out again, and then I put Velcro on them. So mm-hmm. when I have females that are in the pre-egg-lay shed, they get a yellow tag on their tub. To me, yellow is caution. Be on the lookout. Get ready for the shed. Yeah. Once they have their pre-egg-lay shed, I write the date on the tub, and they get a red tag. Stop there. Make sure you're checking twice a day on that tub because eggs are coming. Green is you feed everybody, you go back through, all right, who hasn't eaten? They get a green tag. I'll let them sit overnight. If they still haven't eaten, make sure I don't have to go through every tub again. I can just go on the ones that have the green. All right, they didn't eat, toss it in the garbage, move on, get your work done on the next rack. Hey, Chad, you brought up something very interesting that a lot of keepers don't do. I do it, though. Why do you throw away the rodent? Because if it's got something, I'm not putting it into another animal's tub. Yeah. It's well, and, and I just wanted but, to but you can, bring you that can up expense because, all that, you know. Right, right, exactly. But, it, you know, I, I've heard this from other people is, well, no, we'll just reuse the road in here or we'll refreeze it. I don't think many people are conscious of that. I used to do that, will. Matt. I would, you know, especially if you mm-hmm. got two Mexican black kings right next to each other, two females. They're going, they're being bred to the same male. If, if number two didn't eat, but number three is right next to it and she ate, I used to toss number two's meal into number three to see if she would eat. Now it goes in the garbage. It's just less risk yeah. as the collection grows. And it 
and you bring up a point too, it doesn't matter the size of the collection. It took me a while to learn this as the mm-hmm. collection got bigger. It's just too much of a risk for that dollar mouse to lose a, a multi-hundred dollar animal. No, I agree with you. Um, it, it's just something I, I've I've been burned on it. I, I have. Think many people have. Um, you know, and it, it, it's just something, honestly, I think something to talk about if you will. I think it's it's good to bring up some of these values and, and proper lessons that how we can treat other viewers and, and try to teach lessons lessons on how we've been burned in this hobby. And it sucks. Idiocracy mistake we I make. I mean, yeah. you have it happened to you once. Yeah. You have it happen with a it with a valuable or rare animal. It's devastating. I saw an argument once in a so I don't remember the group. It was definitely a group on Facebook though. Imagine that an argument. I'm not on Facebook, so I uh, can't I can't comment. Well there you go. You're probably <laughs> a much saner human being than the rest of us. But somebody was literally saying like it's a waste to throw it somebody had called out the the topic was like what do you do with rodents when the snakes don't eat them? And somebody said, I, I have a disposal snake. Everybody talks about their garbage disposal king snake or something that they throw all the rodents to. And, and um, I don't do that, like you all said. And somebody, you know, there was this back and forth, and then there was this whole interaction of like, well, if the snake didn't try to eat the mouse, how did the disease get onto the mouse? And I didn't. I, I, I felt the urge to write a novel, but I, I didn't do it. So um, I think that's something we should talk about right now in case somebody's wondering, like, how does that happen? Well, the snake uh, doesn't. The snake vectors. never moves inside its enclosure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the snake can have the, 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 the spores or the bacteria or the virus particles, whatever, on it um, because it's shedding them when it breathes, when it flicks its tongue, Poops. when it passes your rates or whatever. And then it slithers over top of the mouse. It doesn't have to ingest the mouse. So that's one way. But another way is let's say you've got a snake that you didn't you go to feed it and you didn't realize it's in blue and it's in its hide box or paper towel roll or whatever, and it, you know it has not moved. Um, every sizable collection is going to have some kind of fly. It's going to have either fungal gnats, which are the itty-bitty little black guys, um, or it's going to have what people think are fruit flies. And those are actually forid flies. And forid flies are one of the absolute best vectors of disease on planet Earth. Um, and that's how, and when we had the crypto here, that is exactly how the crypto passed from one enclosure to another enclosure to another enclosure. Because you put a, a ventilation hole or something into the, the tub, and you, you just created like... <laughs> a giant archway entranceway for the forwards to go from one tub to the other. So what happens is you have that, you have a couple forwards in there. I'm not saying you're infested with flies. I mean, you have like two or three. If there was any feces in that tub and that snake had a disease, the forwards are on it. They get the particles on them. They get the spores on them. Now there's a dead mouse. They like the dead mouse more than they like the poo. So they're going to same tub, go to the mouse, run around all over the mouse they're the ones that are passing the disease. It's not the actual snake. So that's just for people listening and they're wondering like why or how or what does this 
does the disease get to the mouse if the snake's not interacting with the mouse because it's not eating it? That's that's how. And that tub is that. If you have crypto, the spores are in the tub. So the flies in the tub, spores are in the tub, and it takes less than five spores to infect a snake. And they pass a million every time they go to the bathroom if it's a massive infection. So I don't want to play those odds. So don't feed the mouse to something else. Yeah. Yep. So there you I go. agree. It's just not worth it. It's um. Mm-hmm. No, and even and Chad, you and I, we've even talked because I don't think many keepers actually disinfect or sterilize their tubs properly, even though you may be buying F10 or cleaning with peroxide or cleaning with ammonia. There, there is a avenue of proper cleaning procedure too, and I know you practice this because yes. we've talked about it too. Yeah. So, how do you clean a tub? What's your my finger protocol? <laughs> there you go. Um, if you're doing a scrub down, um, what's that look? You know, like? I honestly, I only break my tubs down maybe once or twice a year completely. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, I've got a couple different garbage cans in the rooms. A lot of the smaller 13 gallon ones, which get emptied every other day and then i've got the what is it 42 or 45 or 50 or 55 gallon ones on the wheels yeah those are for the ones dumping the whole all the bedding and crap into for breakdown then they go they get soaked they get over to the tub i get them washed out i get them soaked like you mentioned with f10 come through they get scrubbed out and then they get spritzed with a uh, 20 percent hydrogen peroxide solution they air dry for a day or sometimes longer in a day because that mm-hmm. hydrogen peroxide doesn't really evaporate like water. And it does take a long time. for. I've had it last up to three days before it will fully evaporate. And that's how I do my sanitation. And I know, Matt, we had talked about ultraviolet. Um, and um, Regis Offerman out in Colorado, he's a retired. Yep, very yeah, familiar Regis with guy. Regis. Um, he says just put him out in the sun for a day. That's going to whack everything. Yeah, and and Regis is a retired veterinarian, too, which is interesting because I've had these conversations. Retired vet professor as well as a practicing vet. Yeah, he's Mm -hmm. a a good guy. That's who I got my Herman's tortoises from back in 08, 09. That was my first keeping of tortoises, was through because we were visiting him. My wife and I were on a trip out there and wanted to stop in see his collection and I'm like what are these things well, these are herman tortoises these things aren't that big i could keep these so again i like small critters so yeah. I, what are they the four smallest tortoise or something like that so, mm-hmm. They're super personable um two males seven females in the herd and i've got one of the males that'll come over to you turn around stick out his rear left leg he just wants it to be rubbed and i guarantee you it is his leg Well, and and not to mention too many names, but uh, Regis actually has a pair of mandarins going to him from my collection once it warms up too, as well. No, Regis is is. a great guy. So yeah, and he's uh, he's had a lot of lot of really good animals over the many many decades that he's been keeping them. Like like really good lines or lineages or localities. He does get the best of the best. 
But that's. That, well, I mean, that's why he's picking yeah, up. Well, there you, that, that was much, that was yeah. my whole point in saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that and that's how I sanitize. Um, in the summer months, I'll let them sit out all day if it's a sunny day, instead of using the hydrogen peroxide. But I buy the. Uh, you don't want to use the three percent that you get at the local uh, Walgreens or CVS or like that. No, I get. I think it's thirty-five percent food grade, and then I mm -hmm. dilute it uh, like forty percent. So it's about a twenty percent solution. But you have you you have to wear gloves because that stuff that <laughs> burns your yes, skin. It will. Hmm. Have you ever gotten it up your? Not that you're like snorting the crap, but have you? done that thing where you get it close to your face and you kind of breathe it in when it's kind of aerosolved and you're, you're I, like <laughs> I, yeah i did but now i use a spray bottle and i hold it at arm's length mm -hmm. and i put it yes. on the ground and i squirt it saturate it i do the next tub on the bottom saturate it stack that one on top of it perpendicular to it and then i'll do a stack yep. from floor to ceiling i'll get all my stacks up in the in the room and then Again, like it says, it usually within a day, most of it will be evaporated, depending on how thick you spray it. But, and I do a real fine mist on the sprayer, so I get everything. So, but um, yeah, that stuff is nasty if you get it on your skin. Oh yeah, I was cleaning this past weekend, just some of the hatchlings, and I do the same procedure. And holy cow, I forgot to wear gloves. I was like, oh, I'll knock out a few of this. And I'm like, holy cow, well, my I was gonna say, white geez, and burning. You, you know, it starts burning, and you don't see anything, and you, you think nothing of it. Yeah. All of a sudden, you look back a minute later, your skin's all white blistered out. Not blistered, but yeah. you got the white patches yeah. all over the place. Yeah. It does that dull. Oh, yeah. It's not even a burn. I don't know how It's a tingling feeling. It, yeah, it's like yes. pins and needles, and then it hurts. Yeah, as soon as I'm done spraying... <laughs> I wash the gloves and then I take my hands off and then I wash them again. Just and not even wash them, just run them with water mm -hmm. just to dilute it even further. Because that stuff is, ooh, I hate it. It burns. So we're gonna come back into the snakes. Not that this is this is actually the stuff I think our listeners need to hear. Um, but over the years, you've seen herpetoculture go in many directions. Yes. How do you see it changing in the future? Like you mentioned how we, we overtook dogs and cats this year. Uh, like, but what, what do you think you know, the future that's is? a good question because, because when I put out some money for some high-end animals, and these were just morph animals, if you will, all right? This was with the intention of, of getting a good return on them. My number one concern was always is the market going to crash? Is the market going to crash? I no longer think like that. Mm -hmm. All I want to do is produce the animals. There's an outlet out there for these animals. I think, I think Steve Irwin, like you mentioned earlier, when he was coming online and I forgot about the Jeff Corwin guy. I, <laughs> I think those guys were pioneers for the younger generation coming in. I, again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm an old timer or anything, but Again, I'm not on social media. I'm going to get an Instagram account going, but I don't have a Facebook. I don't plan on getting a Facebook. I'd like to update my website. I haven't updated it since 2014. So I, I got to get a little bit more current, if you will, with the social mm -hmm. stuff. 
But I think, like I do a lot of, my, my wife is a school teacher and she teaches second grade. And I always do a presentation in her classroom. And 15, 17 years ago, when I would go in out of a class of 20 or 22 kids, there might be three or four that would want to touch the snake. The rest were afraid to. Now, it's rare if I have one that doesn't want to hold it or touch it. And I think just the, the exposure to these animals and the fear and the stigmatism of them being slimy and wet and scary and all that stuff is, is no longer out there for these kids. And so I think it's going to continue to grow. The nice thing is I have severe allergies to mammals. I'm allergic to birds and I'm a big bird hunter. I use dogs mm -hmm. to hunt the birds. It sucks because I can't keep my own dogs and I, I can't keep the birds. Well, I eat them, but that's about it. But anyways, these animals I have no issues with. However, when I get bit, I hive up like crazy. And the only thing I can attribute that to is everything I, I keep is a rodent eater and there's gotta be something in their saliva with the rodents that causes my reaction. But they don't make noise unless you keep some of the geckos or, well, some of the tortoises can get really vocal. Mm -hmm. That's kind of comical though. Um, but the <laughs> yeah. snakes is, I mean, they, they don't make noise. I mean, you can keep them in apartments, you can keep them in dorms, you can keep them in houses. You can go away for a week and not have to worry about hiring a or sending them off to a kennel or anything like that. I just, I, I think the future is going to continue to grow in popularity for these animals. I'm happy to see it too. I'm also happy to see that the, the prices have finally started to catch up with the other costs that have come up. You know, our caging has gone up, our rodent costs have gone up, our rodent bedding, our food bedding, our, 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 our bedding, the snake bedding has gone up. And really, I mean, Matt, I mean, when was the last time you saw price increases on a corn snake? I mean, it was 20-some years straight. Oh, it was man. flat. I mean, yeah. I mean, in all honesty, I think you, you picked up on a key point, and it's keeping the animals that you're interested 100%. in. 100%. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Chad, you, you brought, and, and we've talked about this, is chasing the dragon. You know, chasing the next animal, chasing the next morph, all of this. But somehow the personalities that do that sometimes will get burned in this hobby because, like you mentioned, you're afraid of the market sure. crashing. But when you do this for the pure love of the animals, you know, like you mentioned, getting into locality spe specimens, I mean, it's just your heart races when something pops yes. up that you're looking for and it's like whoa, whoa whoa hold on you know and it's just so exciting it's exhilarating it brings back that childhood um memory of keeping the animal and that that's what we should be striving for in this hobby yeah i mean you know locality or you you were you were visiting that area on a trip sometime and you're like oh man if i could have a pair of snakes from this area i was i visited this area or i or i caught animals in that area but i couldn't legally keep them I didn't have a hunting license or a collecting license or whatever, whatever it may be. Or I went down there looking for them, but I never found them. Now I can get captive bred animals from F1 or even F2 generations. That's 
and again, that's not for everybody, you know. Um, but to me, that's exciting because you can look at it. And I, I've got yeah. I've got these uh, I've got maps of the world, a map of the world, and a map of the United States, and they're all laminated. They're they're good sized maps. I keep in the room, and I just love pinpointing. All right, these came from this this area, or these come from this country, or this comes from this locality and this this county in this state. I just I think that's just another element of the enjoyment that we get to to keep these critters. But I do think I do hope too, but I do think that it is going to continue to to gain popularity reptiles and amphibians as a whole. I mean, look at the arachnids and the I mean, I ugh, I don't know, teach their own, but look at the popularity of some of those critters. I mean, some of those yeah, those, uh, I, I get the squeebie jeebies. You don't. You don't have a pet centipede. That's no, but I long. do have a, a pet green bottle blue tarantula. But I never can see her because she's got the whole cage in a web. <laughs> web. <laughs> yeah. But I don't hold her, and I just I think she's pretty. But I would choose to have another one because I could like to see her. I never see her. But again, that's just something that I've always enjoyed and. Want to say, all right, I'll take the plunge and get one. So, do you think? Obviously, everybody talks about the ball python craze of the past decade, two mm-hmm. decades, maybe even two and a half decades. Uh, there seems to be this idea that not necessarily the ball pythons are going away, and not that we want them to go away, but that you know, there's like the ball python community that's now established, and a lot of the people who who were in that have kind of not necessarily burned out, but they've reached a point where diversity is something they're willing to entertain. And now they're kind of coming over to colubrids. And in the past five years, colubrids have kind of seen this upswing all of a sudden, since you obviously are breeding hundreds of colubrids. Do you agree with that? Do you not agree with that? Do you think it's, it's just now starting or what, what's your take on that? I, I, from my point of view, I would say that I was guilty of that because I jumped out of a lot of my other colubrids to focus just on the hognose. And again, I don't want to call it burnout, but I got bored. I missed all the other species. I missed, I missed a lot of the stuff about keeping those other species. I think a lot of ball python people that are into it. Not a lot, but there's people out there that got rid of all their colubrids to do solely or focus heavily just on the balls. And I think they're starting to maybe miss those other species now and it's coming back. I would say the colubrid resurgence probably started in coming online around 16 or 2017 is was okay. when I started to notice it with people looking for things. Um I think it's every year it's gotten stronger. And I hope it continues. Again, they're not as easy, in my opinion, to keep as the pythons because you feed them once or twice a week. They crap two times for every feeding. Whereas most of the pythons, you feed them once, they'll, you feed them twice, they might crap once. Or even feed them three times, they crap once. So just, I hope people realize that, you know, it is a little bit more time consuming to keep the colubrids than it is the pythons. But there's as many python ball python mutations out there we've got that in the corns we've got that in i mean even the just the subspecies of garter snakes 
Look at the different colors. Yeah. Or even just the subspecies of king snakes or milk snakes or rat snakes. Yep. And then you also have mutations within a lot of the rat snakes. And the king snakes, I should say. And the milk snakes. But, I mean, all of it's got it. And I just... I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know. It had to be early, late 2009 odds. Um, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, 12, somewhere in there. I mean, Tarahumara Mountain King Snakes, I couldn't even sell for $50. Nobody wanted them. Now they're a $200, $300 animal, if you can find them. Mexican Black Kings have always been a $25 to $35 animal. They've been $100 plus for the last six years. Corn snakes. I, I actually like that There's pr the prices have gone up because it it when something becomes more expensive... That whole, it's disposable, I don't really need to worry about, like, that yes. element goes away. Like, locally, one of the things that I think's interesting is I got back into this around 2014, 15, and my local monthly show, I've got two. I've got one in Columbus, which is the all-Columbus reptile show that's been going on literally forever, um, and then I, which is about an hour and a half from me, and then I could drive up to Pittsburgh and go to that show and it's a little show it's where i go to get feeders if i need them but i remember in 2014 i saw a hypo bull snake on a table and i like i love pitch office they're one of my faves so i was like all right i'll buy that and it was 110 for a hypo um for a hypo uh and i was just up there last month and the hypos were on, same guy same table they were I can't remember. Like the three hundred dollar range, maybe. So that thing's tripled in cost, but no one's just like three hundred bucks is a bit of an investment. You're not just going to be shelling that out. So that's a good thing. Here's another view that I try to look at: is you know we've all been in it for several years, so we know where these were five, ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. For people just coming in now. $300, that's the going rate. They don't know that mm -hmm. these snakes were $100 five, 10 years ago. So they have nothing to compare against. For us, it's like, holy crap, you're getting $300 for these things now? But that's just, I mean, look at everything. I mean, houses today, cars today. Yeah. I mean, brand new car. When I started driving, you could buy a brand new car for $9,000. <laughs> you can't get that today. No. You're doing that today. So I guess it is relative, but mm -hmm. I do agree with you that I think just in the past five years, I would say, the prices have really gone and climbed more than what they have the previous 15 years combined. And I'm, I'm happy to see that, too, because all of our other costs have gone up. And, and also to your point where it's not a disposable animal. Oh, you want a cheap snake? Here's a $25 corn snake. If it dies, no big deal. Well, no, it's still a living animal. You still got to take, you still have a responsibility yeah. to that animal. If you're going to keep it, you better keep it going good. I don't know. No, I agree. Um, you know, and, and, and Chad, this kind of brings up something. This is kind of one of our questions we asked a, a number of our, our guests is what future goals do you personally have, not only in your collection, 
but just in terms of the hobby itself? And where do you see your collection going, especially as as you grow here? I mean, you're you're talking a substantial growth and you know building out of your collection. Yeah, my my immediate future plans are to get this building erected. Um, with two colubrid rooms, a pitchuophis and rainbow boa room, a ball python room, and a hatchling room. And the and the the colubrids, the pitchuophis slash rainbow and the ball rooms, my holdbacks will stay within those rooms. The hatchling room will be just animals available for, for sale. And then there'll be an office, there'll be a shipping receiving area, and then there'll be a tub cleaning area, a washroom, if you will. So that that's my goal, and that's probably going to be f- five to seven years before that those rooms are fully occupied. As far as the hobby or the industry goes, I, I'd like to do a little more of the presentations to the grade schools. I'd like to get into maybe my uh, mm-hmm. my daughter's school. Um, the concern that I have with that, though, is you let these kids hold it. Again, this wasn't a big deal or an issue several years ago, but now everybody in this country, I mean, this country has more lawsuits than the rest of the world combined. If a kid gets bit, yeah, what type of insurance do I need to cover and who's going to provide that insurance? So that's that's my one, I guess, red flag I have. Well, I wouldn't even call it. It'd be a yellow flag that I have about trying to promote and introduce these kids. I mean, I love to take the shed skins, the hatched eggs. I pull the world maps down in the in the classroom, show them where in the world these species come from. And most of them, eh, not that interest. They just want to touch the thing or hold the thing, which is fine. But I guess one way to avoid that maybe is just always have control of the head. Let them just touch the body and the tail, yep, the belly. But I, I, I would like to have more expo. I would like to provide more exposure to younger kids. And when I say younger, I'm talking kindergarten through maybe third or fourth grade, because I think that's where you really set the foundation for them, where you eliminate the fear of these animals, and they don't grow up with the stigmatism or the the myths that these animals are slimy and deadly and harmful and creepy and whatever else people call the reptiles amphibians. Now, granted, some of them are going to be slimy, but I'm not really... I don't deal with any amphibians, so I don't have the slimy part side. Maybe some frogs, I guess. <laughs> but it's no different than a fish. I mean... You go grab a fish, you should always wet your hand before you take the fish off the hook to avoid getting the slime all off, the protective slime off of them. But I, I don't know. I, 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 that's Those are, I guess, my plans right now. Um, the collection, definitely, I have the five- to seven-year plan. I'd like to see it done and completed in five years. Don't know if I'll get there. That's going to be a lot of production, a lot of holdbacks. But I think seven years is is definitely doable to get it and i'd like to have two identical colubrid rooms off cycle so you know yeah. you know what i mean by okay yeah just mm-hmm. and that is definitely going to be brumation time in there because that'll give me at least <laughs> out, of, yeah. out of 24 months i'll at least have six months off between the two rooms 
and um, some new species I'd like to acquire. Again, I, I think I mentioned earlier, I really would like to get back into Cichula. Um, there's a couple other species I'd like to get that I've never, I mean, house snakes, African house snakes. I've never worked with those. I'm anxious to get some of those. Um, some more Pituophis, some other species I don't work with. I think I'm working with one, two, three, four, five, I think five species of, of Pituophis right now. I'd like to get a few more. Um, I'd probably like to add a couple more garter snake species. King snakes, I think I'm good. Milk snakes, I think I'm good there. There's probably a rat snake or two that I might add. Uh, and uh, here in the United States, local rat snakes, nothing, nothing from Europe or, or Asia, but um, I don't know, maybe try my hand with some boas, like uh, the red tails of sort. The bigger ones. Not too big, though. Again, I'm not a big big snake person. Definitely no retics on the plant or berms. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe some children's pythons. Mm. Turtles and tortoises. I think I'm good with those. I do want to get a greenhouse built here this summer, hopefully. So I can keep all those guys out year-round out there and winter them out there. Um, geckos, I'm good. I don't know. It's nice to have a few of them, but my true love is the is the snakes. It's nice, though. I'm fortunate to be able to have a couple of those other species just to keep it interesting. I do love my, the turtles I'm working with. Yeah. I love my Spangler eye. They're just a they're just they're just goofy. The little eyes, the little googly eyes coming at you and then just go after the tongs instead of what you're feeding them out of the tongs. The spotted turtles are starting to warm up. Obviously, the hermans are great. The redfoots are still young. I just acquired one. I've got a couple more hopefully coming in when the weather warms up a little bit. So that's a new species for me. Um, I actually, I thought about trying to get maybe some mountain tortoises too. And I like to put a pen out in the yard and let them just cord off like a half acre of, of, of woods and let them just live out there for the summer. But I got to worry about how I would predator-proof that. Maybe electric fence. Or bring up, or bring out the 22. Yeah. I don't know. One of the two. <laughs> Although I got to worry about, I just had, we just had oh, uh, three great horned owls hooting last night out here in uh I don't know if you guys have those down by you, but that up here, the great, the great horned owls oh, are the yeah. first birds to lay, they lay their eggs next month. They're the first birds to lay their eggs, and so they're starting to pair bond up here. And granted, I don't think they'd I be able to take out a tortoise. Field trip to Kansas to look for um, western hogs. Oh, you didn't? Any. No, found thirty-five. Did you really? Herps, but no western hogs. Yeah, I'm not bitter at all. Um, wow. <laughs> but uh, I will be heading back to, to Kansas again. But one of the really cool things, because I'm here in Appalachia, and you can't get any different than the prairie, you know, flat rolling hills versus my mountains that I have all around me. But we were out road cruising, and it just turned dark, and a great horned owl flew across the road, and I, like, lost it. And I had two students with me. And I told him, like, how, like, oh, this is amazing. We don't get to see these things that often, da-da-da. And then in the next 15 minutes, oh we saw nine. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, 
they were freaking everywhere. Um, it was impressive. really, really cool. But Do you have extra underpants with yeah. you? Yeah. I needed un extra underpants a lot for that particular <laughs> night because I'm not, I've never done an open range road before. I didn't know what that was. Oh. And we ended up in Oklahoma and we're driving down the road and I'm looking and I'm like, oh, there's a cow that looks a lot like a bison. And then I was like, that's a freaking bison um, in the road. <laughs> like, was, like my, I didn't have, yeah. And then, and then the kid that was driving was from uh, Eastern Colorado um, originally. So he's done open range road cruising and he's just like, just driving through this herd of bison. Like it's nothing. And they're running all around the car. That's when I needed the underpants. And then the next day we did the same road and the herd actually had come up to the road because the, uh, the, they were farmed. Sure. They weren't wild, but um, that you could definitely tell it was like feed time. And I was losing it when we saw like 10 or 15 bison, I think at night. <laughs> and when we were down there during the day, they were like somewhere between 80 and a hundred bison all over the road. So that is cool. That was pretty cool. Get up um, and close to them. Normally you yeah. only get to see that in the national parks. Oh, real close to them. <laughs> Yep. <clears throat> yeah, Anywho. and and road herping okay. that, that is one thing I've been trying to do for I've wanted to do since the early 90s is is catch a subock and catch an alterna. Mm -hmm. And catch a western hog. I've tried a couple states and I've never caught the western hog yet either and that's just on the bucket list to do and hopefully here in the next couple of years I'll get some time to head down there and hopefully find them. Yeah. Although uh, my herping goal in 2022, because I'm writing this book, and I'm, I'm putting it now into, like, now that I'm going to say it on the podcast, Murphy's going to show up and keep it from happening. But um, I want to find every – my goal is to find every species of heterodon except for the Mexicans this in year. In one year? So the southerns, the easterns, and the well, westerns. if you need eastern, mm -hmm. you can come up here. I'll, I'll get you easterns for sure. All right, sweet. Usually I'm on my way. Late April, early May. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. I can't help you with okay. the westerns. I can't help you with the southerns. I've got places to go, and I'm just getting photographs. You know, nothing's coming back because uh, we have the captive-born stock. So there's absolutely no reason to try to get a wild. I can't think of anything worse to try to bring in than a wild. Yeah, I don't think you need like to. That. There's, there's. Enough, yeah, you don't. There, yeah, there's enough. Enough. Genetic variation right now in captivity. Just do some searching. Yeah, we can get uh, either the browns or the yellow, high yellow easterns here. Two different ones. Oh, one's cool. forty-five minutes west of me. Those are the yellows, and then about a three-hour drive to the along the Mississippi or where the browns occur. Or at least that's where I sweet. I know where to catch them. At least sweet, sweet, sweet. And then we. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I do like Wisconsin. I'll never leave it. Just I love the four seasons, but we don't have a lot of herps, or at least for me, a lot of interesting herps. Um, I haven't found the Massasauga yet. I've caught a lot of timbers, the bulls, a lot of the amphibians, a lot of the turtles. We do have the blandings here, which are nice, but the, but they are protected. Yes. But there's a, there's a male blandings in a pond. I want to say this pond's no bigger than an acre. And he has been there. He was an adult when I was a freshman in high school. And my manager was a big herper. He didn't keep anything. He just liked to go. And he showed me this pond. 
And um, I hadn't been there in several years. And I took my daughter out last May, and he was still there. Just a <laughs> giant awesome. male. And uh, I, I don't know how old he is, but he's got to be at least at least 40. But I don't know if he's got any females in that little pond. Hopefully he does. Mm-hmm. But it's cool to get out and do that stuff, too. It just... It's a different perspective. Yeah. And then like the East, I mean, again, we don't have a lot of amphibians, but the tiger salamanders, the Eastern newts, the blue spotteds, the peepers, the wood frogs, leopards. Yeah, tiger salamander is pretty high on my list, actually. I have a, a student right now who lives in Ohio. And um, one of the first classes I taught him at West Liberty, we're a little school. We only, we're, we're actually a lot okay. like Stevens Point. Um and so you get to know I like I wanted to teach at a school like this because I wanted to get to know my kids. And uh, he went home for um I think it was Valentine's Day and it was raining and he lives a little bit north of Columbus and he sent me a picture and he's like, Hey, I found a salamander and it was the most I mean, it was the most beautiful eastern tiger salamander ever. And I I was so insanely jealous and of was- him <laughs> because he has this it was in his driveway. I was like, okay. And then I was like, you got to look for more. And I didn't think he would find any more. Um, I think he found like four or five more in the next hour. Like really? It's just his yard is polluted with ambitious And this was in salamanders. February? So late February, early March. We had a real warm spell then, kind of like the weather we've been having okay. down here lately. Um, but yeah. How... No, it wasn't like early February. It was, well, Valentine's yeah. Day, mid-February. I was conceived on Valentine's Day. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And on that note, on that token, (laughs) if people want to get a hold of you. Uh, Good luck. um, This has been an excellent, this has been an excellent episode. Do do you have any way of people getting a hold of you if they're interested in any of the 700 Yes, I would say uh, I, I'm not the you best. Have? I'm I'm trying to improve on this. I just got a new phone. I, my phone was out of commission for several weeks. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So they could try emailing me. Again, the website hasn't been updated since 2014. So there's probably some animals on there still available, but they're probably long sold. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So email, I guess. Yeah, or, or they're or breeding they're, or stock. They're, or now. they're getting, or yeah. they're getting ready to be replaced <laughs> with new fresh breeding stock. Um, email I guess chad at cfsnakes.com and then if you want to try texting me I would prefer a text over a phone call just 414-640-9160 and if I don't respond to your text within a day hit me again I just either I looked at it and a phone call came in or I got pulled away from something and I forgot to go back and respond I'm terrible. I'm ter- I got to improve. Go. I know that. I'm just letting you know up front. I'm terrible at getting back. When you get onto Instagram and start putting pictures up, I have a feeling that you're going to get real good real quick um, <laughs> when the whole world can see what you have. See, I don't um, even know how Instagram works. Yeah. I guess I guess uh, I opened an Instagram account seven years ago. <laughs> Because I tried to set one up just like last weekend, and it says you forgot your password. I said uh-huh. apparently, and I, it says I joined seven years ago. <laughs> so I haven't made a post yet, but I plan on doing that no. here in the next couple of weeks. Cool. 
Get your daughter to help you. I don't know how old she is. She's she probably knows more than you. <laughs> oh, there you go. Just through that stuff like crazy. I just, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I know I got to I know I have to be better at it. Yeah. I'll work at it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, well, yeah, this has been great, man. We'll, we'll definitely have fun. you on again. You, you got enough. Yeah, I know. And I, I'll, I told I'll you. get a camera for next time, too. Talking about the things we like. <laughs> All right. There we go. Yeah. If you've made it to this point, we've been looking at a brown screen. So it's been it's been totally okay, though. All right. Yeah, I, I will, I'll, I'll get a camera. Um. <laughs> All good. All good. So, yeah, Matt, you have anything else other than thank you no, thank, so much? Thanks, Chad. We we really appreciate you coming on and being our first guest. Of well, thank you guys. I appreciate. It. This is the first time um, I've ever done anything like this. No, and and to be honest, I think this was a great episode to start off 2022 because we brought in a, a number of facets of husbandry. You proved Zach wrong with his. Formation biology, <laughs> yeah. and um, no, in all honesty, all joking aside. Okay, I was going to say because I think it, I think yeah, it just it, sets up yeah, the environment and the animals. <laughs> you know, these animals, in my opinion, they need food, they need water, and they want to reproduce. That's the three things yep. that they're they have to do. And um, yeah, provide them the I basic agree. elements, and they're going to figure out a way to do it. I mean, these guys have been around for a lot longer than we have. They'll uh, they'll dad. figure it out. Just got to introduce them. Out. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, all right. Well, people that want to get a hold of me, you know where to do that. Uh, Zach Loafman on Facebook, Doctor Crawdad, Zach Loafman on Instagram. Um, I guess I should say I need to be saying this more. So remind me to say this, Matt. It it is the time of year where I am taking on graduate students and. There are openings in the herpetoculture labs. So if you want to do your master's degree with herpetoculture, this is the time to do it, man. So um, any guys or gals out there that want to do this, just look me up online. You can totally message me through social media. That's fine. doesn't have to be overly formal. Or you can write me an email, uh, and um, I will respond. So that's where you can find me. Where can they find you, Matt? And you can find me on Sarpamitra on Facebook as well as Instagram, or you can email me at matt at sarpamitra.com. All righty. So this is the first episode of 2022. We shall see how many episodes we get by the end of this year. But uh, with that, thanks for listening. And we'll Happy see you guys. Happy New Year, guys.